Well, we, we know from our recent studies in John chapter 6 that as Jesus himself says, he is the bread of life. In John chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And when they say, Sir, give us this bread always, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So we know from our recent studies in John chapter 6 that this manna foreshadows Jesus, that it is Jesus who is prefigured by the manna here. And we spent uh, several weeks working our way through John chapter 6, and we have explored that idea from a number of different angles. But as we come to the original story here in Exodus chapter 16, we find that there is yet more to study pertaining to this relationship. So we're not necessarily going to go over everything that we've already done in in John chapter 6, but I'm going to add a little bit more texture to this relationship between the manna and Jesus tonight. I want to show you two things about the manna that the Israelites of old received. The first thing is that it was neither the manna that they thought that they needed, nor was the manna what they preferred. We're going to see that it's the same way with us and Christ, that He's not the Savior that we thought we needed, and sometimes, to our shame, He's not the Savior that we prefer. So let's jump into our study tonight. They thought, the Israelites of old thought, it seemed intuitive to them that man lives by bread alone. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, this is Moses speaking many, many years later when the Israelites are on the cusp of actually going into the promised land, so about 40 years later. Moses says... Let me begin at verse 2 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So this is Moses' interpretation of what's been happening the last 40 years. Why did the Lord feed the Israelites with manna? In order that they might know that man does not live by bread alone. They originally thought, they initially thought, it seemed intuitive to them that man does live by bread alone. Look, it's simple. Cause and effect. If you don't have bread, you starve and you die. Simple as that. Man lives by bread alone. What can sustain our lives? Bread alone. And bread here is put for food. Right? It's not necessarily bread 
okay, it could have been, you know, some goat stew or something. But the point, bread just stands for food. Man lives by food alone. What can sustain our lives in the wilderness? Only food. Only bread. Man lives by bread alone. So they thought, at this juncture of the Exodus story, they thought that they needed normal food. And since there was none, or at least since there was not a sufficient amount for the whole multitude that was there, perhaps they had a few little animals with them or whatever, but there was definitely not enough to feed the whole multitude. If they slaughtered every animal in their possession, if they maybe ate, if there had been any uh, fruit in Elam, where these trees were, where there was a little oasis, if they ate maybe a piece of fruit that they had brought from Elam, it was all going to run out real quick. And, of course, in their minds, what can sustain their lives? Bread alone. And so they thought, well, man lives by bread alone, and there is no bread, therefore, we're all going to die. This is exactly what they say in Exodus 16 and verse 3. You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. But God's intention was to leave them without normal food. To humble them, as it says in Deuteronomy 8.3, to let them hunger in order that they might learn that man does not live by bread alone. In other words, God wants to teach them that all does not depend on natural cause and effect. But that God's provision is sometimes miraculous. I meant to write it down, uh, but I forgot, so I'll paraphrase. But in our confession, it says something like this, that God normally works through means. But God is free at times to work against means. Or above means. Or apart from means. This is what God wanted to teach them. Just because you can't find any fruit, just because you don't have enough goats and sheep and cattle to slaughter and feed yourselves, just because you don't have a storehouse of wheat, don't worry about it. I'm taking care of you. Their view was that what can sustain our lives? Bread alone. And God was saying, no, 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 not so fast. Man does not live by bread alone. Notice it doesn't say man does not live by bread. Because ordinarily, man does live by bread. But God was teaching them, man does not live by bread alone. You've left something important out of the equation. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What can sustain us then? What can preserve our lives? Not bread alone, but either bread or the word of God. If God gives the word, we'll be all right. If God gives the word, our lives will be preserved. If God provides for us, we're going to be all right. Even if we don't have bread. This is what God was wanting to teach them. That he is to be looked to and trusted 
instead of us reducing all things to natural cause and effect. God wants us to know that He is able to transcend natural causes and sustain our lives apart from bread. This is what God was teaching them. Don't have a naturalistic worldview. As if there is no God in heaven. As if great Jehovah doesn't guide you pilgrims through the barren land. Now, when we learn of God's law, and our guilt, and our sin, we tend to think that we need normal solutions to the problem that our guilt and sin poses to us. We tend to think that we need to do penance to get rid of our guilt. If we can do something to redeem ourselves, to offset the bad, then it's going to be all right. We tend to think that if we can just exercise enough willpower to attain enough righteousness, it's all going to be okay. That's pretty intuitive, isn't it? The way that needing bread, needing goats or chickens or cattle or wheat to sustain your physical life is a pretty intuitive thought. It's intuitive to us that we need to do something about our guilt and we need to do something to clothe ourselves in righteousness. The problem is that we read in the scripture that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And that there's nothing that we can do to cleanse ourselves from sin. There is no expiation that we can make. And so, when we realize that we can't solve the sin problem the way that we naturally think a sin problem should be solved, we think we're going to die. Now, this comes up, say, in evangelism. So if somebody, if you're talking to somebody about God's law and condemnation and sin, the first place that they tend to go is to their own righteousness. And you say, well, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And you explain this idea that you can't atone for your own sin. Well, I'll try to do more good than bad. That won't be sufficient in God's eyes. Then what's the next thing that comes out of their mouth? Well, how could we possibly be saved then? You lead them right to that point. Because, and we see this phenomena, pardon me, we see this in the phenomena of the varied world religions and their common solution to the sin problem. They don't always call it the sin problem. But basically, every world religion says there's something wrong, but if you do your best, and achieve a certain level, then what's wrong is righted. And so you achieve nirvana, right? Or you go into paradise with Allah or whatever. You do it. Natural cause and effect. You sin, well, you make it right. This is the way that we naturally think. What can sustain our physical bodies in the wilderness, bread alone. And 
what can sustain our spiritual lives, our own supply alone, what we have with us, what we're carrying with us. And if we have no wheat, if we have no chickens, goats, cattle, fruit, we're going to die. If we have no righteousness with us, if we have no sufficient penance with us, we're going to die. This is the way we naturally think. But God wants to teach us, man does not live by bread alone. It's not about what you're carrying with you. It's not about natural cause and effect. Jesus is God's supernatural provision for our spiritual life. As the manna was God's supernatural provision for their physical life. Jesus is the manna from heaven that we need. And he is an unexpected savior. He's not the savior we thought we needed. Just as the manna was not the savior that they thought they needed. Their mentality was, we need to come across fields of wheat. We need to somehow stumble upon a herd of cattle somewhere out here in the wilderness. Or else we're going to die. And we think we need to somehow figure out how to fix ourselves. We need to somehow figure out how we can get rid of our sin. Or we're going to die. They didn't conceive. It wasn't really a category of thought that they had. Perhaps the Lord could feed us with bread from heaven. And so it, it isn't really a thought to the natural man. Perhaps the Lord could send his own son as a substitute for us. After all, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. But man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth. Maybe God could do something about our sin problem. You see, they weren't thinking in those terms, and we don't naturally think in those terms. They thought, as I said, that they needed to stumble upon a chicken coop somewhere in the wilderness. They thought that they needed to find a field full of barley or oats or whatever. We think that we need a philosopher to tell us how to live. We think that we need a life coach to motivate us. We think that we need to watch more videos on YouTube from Jordan Peterson and Jocko Willink and all of these guys that are disciplined and diligent in their lives and make themselves better men. We think that we need this as they thought that they needed to find a chicken coop in the wilderness. But into their situation comes an unexpected provision. And into our situation comes an unexpected provision. A Savior that we didn't think we needed. We weren't thinking in that category. We thought we needed another kind of Savior, but here comes Jesus, the bread from heaven. God sent His Son into the world to live as our covenant representative, doing everything that's required of us in our room instead, on our behalf, in order that we might be saved, that we would be counted righteous because Jesus was righteous for us, that we would be counted as having our sin propitiated and expiated because Jesus is our propitiation. 
and expiation. Here comes Jesus, the unexpected provision of God, as here comes this flake-like thing. What is it on the ground? What a surprise. First of all, that there is a supernatural provision from God, because we weren't thinking in those terms. But secondly, the nature of the provision is unexpected. I want you to look at how manna is described in Exodus 16. Look at verse 14, first of all. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And then look down at verse 31. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Okay, so I want you to pretend that we're playing a, some kind of game. Like, uh, I don't know, like, I don't know, I don't really know the name of games properly, but like Pictionary or something. Like, let's play, let's imagine we're playing a game where you're going to describe a thing without saying the name of it, okay? All right. Okay, it's, it's a fine, flake-like thing. It tastes like wafers made with honey. All right, what, what do you think of? Because you know what I think of? Frosted flakes. The cereal, right? When I was in Canada, I used to eat cereal like every morning. Because in Canada, you can get a box of cereal for $3. And for $5, you get four liters of milk. So we're paying here, right, $6 for one liter of milk and like about $85 a box for cereal. <laughs> So my cereal habit is gone. All right, there's no Cheerios for me, no more, no more Frosted Flakes, nothing. But when I read about a fine flake-like thing that tastes like wafers made with honey, I think about Frosted Flakes. Right? That's Tony the Tiger, right? That's what I think of. Now, I just want you to imagine if I said, look, look, I'm on a new diet. Um, I, I basically, I, I found this thing at uh, Price Low or Popular or wherever. And uh, it comes in this blue box. There's this tiger on the front. It's called Frosted Flakes. And it's all I eat. I've been, I've been eating it now for already like a month and I'm going to eat it for the next 40 years. Would you think that that was a healthy diet? Would you think that I'm well set for success? Of course not. It's, it's, it's ridiculous to think so. Even if you took something healthier like bread, right? Or like gluten-free bread, or, or chicken breasts, or anything really, broccoli, like whatever. If you just only ate one thing, no matter what that thing was, it would be a recipe for disaster because our body needs varied nutrition. But I think, especially if I told you it was Frosted Flakes, you'd be especially skeptical because who would think that a fine flake-like thing that tastes like wafers made with honey would supply everything that you need for 40 years? Who would think that? Who would think that you would be satisfied by that? Like, And I don't mean satisfied as in feeling good about it, but I mean satiated. Who would think that you would be satiated by meal after meal after meal of Frosted Flakes? Wouldn't you just think at some point that you're just going to become 
ravenous with hunger. But what does it say in verse 18 at the end of it? Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So these people were getting full off of these frosted flakes, which sustained their lives in a nutritionally balanced way for 40 years. So the very fact that there was provision from heaven for their need was a shock to them. They didn't think that that was what they needed. They thought that they needed to stumble across a whole bunch of animals somewhere in the wilderness or or a whole bunch of fruit trees or fields of wheat or whatever. The very fact that God would provide bread from heaven was just a category they weren't thinking in. And then secondly, if, if they knew that God was going to feed them from heaven, what a surprise it would have been to see the, the nature of the thing that God provides from heaven. Wouldn't you think that God would rain down something that seems more impressive, that seems more hearty and seems more substantial than something like Frosted Flakes, a fine wafer-like thing that tastes like honey and it's as thin as frost on the ground? Now, obviously in Barbados we don't have frost on the ground, but... Like, think about when you open your freezer and there's some frost buildup. You know, and you scrape it off. This is fine. It's not a hearty thing. So what a, what a strange provision from God. This doesn't really seem like the salvation we would need, does it? And isn't that, doesn't that also correspond then to the nature of the provision that God has made in Christ Jesus? What a strange salvation the Lord has given us that a little baby born in Bethlehem would be it. That you would, you would look at that little baby at Mary's breast and say, there's our salvation. There's our bread from heaven. When we had come to the end of ourselves, when we realized that all of our righteousness was as filthy rags. When we realize that no one will be justified by works of the law, there's our salvation. And the boy grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. But he eschewed political influence. We saw even this morning that he doesn't state in plain terms that he is the Messiah because of the misunderstanding. We read at one point in the Gospels that they were going to take him by force and make him king, but he departed and wouldn't let them do it. Snuck away from them. What a strange salvation that he doesn't gather to himself the masses and he doesn't accrue for himself worldly power and pomp. What a strange salvation. He departs to desolate places to be alone with the Father and to pray. What a strange salvation. He doesn't embrace the Pharisees, or the Sadducees. He doesn't align himself with any of the influential parties, but makes enemies of them all. And now here is this man hanging on a cross. There's your bread from heaven. What a strange salvation. Who would think that Frosted Flakes could feed these hundreds of thousands of people in the wilderness for 40 years? And who would think that by the crucifixion of a Jewish peasant, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. Jesus was 
not the manna from heaven that we thought we needed. He was the manna from heaven, but the manna from heaven was not what we thought we needed. We didn't even think in those terms of manna coming from heaven. And then when it arrived, we were like, what is it? Same as the people here. We were surprised to see the nature of it. What a strange salvation. So Jesus is our manna from heaven, but he's not what we thought we needed. And he's not always what we prefer, frankly, to our shame, but he's not always what we prefer. In Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 to 6, we read this. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Here they are again looking at their past with rose-colored glasses, right? Oh, the good old days when we were slaves in Egypt and had to make bricks without straw. Oh, for those good old days. The rabble among them are dissatisfied with the provision from heaven, aren't they? They are dissatisfied with the manna that God has given to them. They're sick of it. They're tired of it. They want some variation. They want something else. They don't, instead of being grateful for the salvation that they have, they're complaining about the nature of the salvation that they have. They are discontented with the manna that God has seen fit to provide for them. And likewise, we sometimes struggle with Christ. Let me explain, and I'm going to quote from Matthew Henry here. It was a mortification to them to be tied for 40 years together to the same food, without any varieties, and to the same clothes in the same fashion. We read elsewhere in the scripture that their clothes did not wear out. So God supernaturally preserved them. So the shirt that you're wearing tonight, you're wearing that for 40 years. And you you don't change it. I don't know, maybe, uh, presumably they took them off and washed them sometimes. I don't know. They were in the wilderness, so where did they wash them? I don't know. The dew from heaven? I'm not sure. Don't ask me about all the details. But in any case, it's not like they had a wardrobe. And whenever they broke camp, you know, they packed in all their multiple sets of clothing. Here they are walking around in the same clothes that the Lord had miraculously preserved. And here they are eating the same food day after day. Matthew Henry says, makes the rather obvious observation that it was a mortification to them to be tied for 40 years to the same food, the same clothes. You can never go shopping for a new shirt or whatever it is that you want, right? A new pair of sunglasses or a new pair of shoes. No, it doesn't happen. You can never, even if you like Frosted Flakes, you can never just change for a day 
just mix things up. You're eating Frosted Flakes all the time. And it was a mortification to them. There was something difficult about this. Matthew Henry acknowledges that. They had to learn to be content with the simplicity of what God had provided. Now, use your imagination. Wouldn't that actually be better anyhow? Miraculous bread from heaven, nutritionally balanced. It doesn't cost you anything. You just go out, gather it up. There it is. Everything you need. And Omer, day by day. They said here that the uh, uh, melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlics, the cucumbers, the fish that they ate in Egypt cost nothing, but really, if you're a slave and you get some food, does it really cost you nothing? I don't think so. It, it costs them really like their freedom, their like so much, right? Their dignity, their all kinds of stuff. But this manna truly didn't. So imagine your grocery bill is gone. No more trips to the supermarket. Everybody else is waiting in line at Popular, but here you are out on the front yard or in your garden, just gathering the manna day by day. Nutritionally balanced. And it, you gather an almer of it for yourself, and it's always as much as you need. You never feel like you need more than an omer. You never feel like you need less than an omer. Everybody else is, you know, trying to bring in this article of clothing or that article of clothing from overseas or going into town on a shopping spree or whatever. And you're like, I've been wearing the same shirt since 1942. I don't need it. I don't need a new one. The Lord miraculously preserves my clothes. Really, really and truly, wouldn't that actually be better? Objectively speaking, what a blessed situation that the Lord was taking such great care of His people. That everything that they actually needed was truly provided for them. Their shoes did not wear out. Their clothes did not wear out. Here's the manna day by day. If you're thirsty, oh, there's a rock. The Lord will just bring some water out of it for you. No problem. All your needs are met. It is actually objectively better. But there was no ostentation about it. It was simple. It was very basic. It was very bare. It was unvaried. There was nothing flashy about it. Now, I say it would be objectively better. But if you started wearing the same shirt every day, day after day, and like 25 years from now, people would be like, why don't you just go buy a new shirt? You know when you might start to feel like, oh man, i got to keep up with the newest changing fashions and whatever, right? Or you might feel like, man, I want to go eat something else. You might have all of these conflicting desires and they would have had the same dynamic. Though there is something objectively better about it, at the same time, it was trying they really had to learn to be content with that which the Lord provided. And whatever other motivations above mere survival, above modesty, above shelter from the sun, all of these 
things that the, what the Lord had provided was, were functionally sufficient for, they had to learn to mortify these other desires, these other cravings. Listen again to Numbers chapter 11. It says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. You see, in a situation like that, it would only be our cravings that would make us long for different clothes. It would only be our cravings that would make us long for different food. You wouldn't actually need anything else, would you? It would only be your cravings. And those cravings had to be mortified by the Israelites during these 40 years. Now, this also corresponds to the provision of Christ Jesus for us. There is something so simple about it. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Yeah, 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 but what else? That's it. Trust and obey. Well, like what, when's the new revelation coming? There is no new revelation coming. It's all here. Jesus is the fullness of revelation. Yes, biblical revelation is progressive. Genesis begins like the little glimmers of light at sunrise. But Jesus is the noonday sun. There's no revelation. Well, when is, when is the next Elijah coming? To do all kinds of mighty miracles that we can see and rejoice in and delight in. We're not led to expect that. You just plod your way through life. Trusting and obeying. It's very simple, really. Well, okay, but could it, couldn't church be a little more exciting? Well, what do, you, what do you want me to do? Get up here and dance for you? The means of grace are very basic. Very bare. The reading of the Word. The preaching of the Word. The singing together of praises to God. Praying to Him. Adoring. Confessing our sins. Thanking Him. Asking for His help. Eating of the Lord's table. Being baptized. But those things are so basic. So simple. Can we do something a little bit more flashy? This is the manna from heaven that we've been given. This is what life in Christ looks like. This is what it means to eat of Christ, to embrace Christ. Just a basic life. Everything we need is given us in Christ Jesus. But it's not flashy. It's not ostentatious. It's not varied. It's the same thing day after day. Trust and obey. Just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood, what we sang earlier. All we have, all we need, all we want is you. We need to learn as the Israelites needed to learn to be satisfied with the bread from heaven that the Lord had provided. We also need to learn to be satisfied with the bread from heaven that the Lord has provided to us. It's not varied. 
It's not flashy. It's not ostentatious, but it's everything we need. There is a Christianized kind of dissatisfaction with our bread from heaven. Let me give you just a couple of passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There is a way in which Christians can deviate from a sincere and pure, pure devotion to Christ. Well, what about something else? Can we just mix a little something else in? Can we just Christ and this, Christ and that? Yeah, Christ is like the main meal, but can we put a little bit of seasoning, a little bit of salt and pepper on this dish? There is a way that we can change who Christ is, what the Christian life is, to make it a little more interesting to us, to suit our cravings. But that's becoming like the rabble. Galatians 1, 6, and 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Again, there's a Christian way of being dissatisfied with who Christ Jesus is, the provision that God has made for us. So we begin to distort the gospel of Christ to suit our cravings. We do this perhaps to conform to societal pressures. There are many deviations that have happened throughout history. There are deviations being pressed upon us even in today's day and age. Think of redefinition of things like guilt. Redefinition of things like justice. It's hard to just be like, well, we're not moving. Like, we just, God gave us this revelation, told us who Christ is, He told us what the Christian life is. We already know what guilt is, we already know what justice is. We're not going to change to suit our cravings or the cravings of the society around us. Well, I don't like this particular doctrine or that particular doctrine. Well, we have to resist the craving to just cut it out of our Bibles then. We have to receive the bread from heaven that God has given us, as is given. And stop seeking variation. Stop seeking variety. Stop seeking change, distortion, dilution, and appreciate the bread from heaven that we've received. Christ Jesus is all we have. He's all we need. And He ought to be all we want. As He's given to us, receive Him. And don't be like the rabble of old who wanted something else because the manna didn't suit their cravings. Don't let your cravings lead you away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Don't let your cravings lead you to distort 
or to embrace a distortion of the gospel of Christ. There's a Christianized kind of dissatisfaction with the manna from heaven. There's also an apostate kind of dissatisfaction. Again, I'll give you a couple of passages. Hebrews 12, 16. We read that no one ought to be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. We remember the story, don't we? That he came home famished. He probably was near near to starving. But nevertheless, Abraham... Um, or pardon me, Isaac was a uh, wealthy man. And Esau could have gone and got something else. But he had to have the stew that Jacob was cooking. And so he traded in his birthright for a single meal. The author to the Hebrews says, don't be like that and give up all that you have in Christ, all that's offered to you in Christ. Just so you can go satisfy your cravings elsewhere. Don't be so unappreciative of the manna that you go out, abandon the manna in order to satisfy your cravings somewhere else. Don't be like that. Don't leave Jesus to go eat somewhere else. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. If, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So again, somebody has come to a knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As I was preaching this morning, that can't mean a saving knowledge, but here they are in the church. They're right there with with the believers. They're among them. They're seeing the manna from heaven falling like dew around them. But here they are abandoning Christ Jesus, abandoning His church, and going back out to get entangled in the defilements of the world. There is an apostate kind of dissatisfaction with the manna from heaven. Whether we continue to call ourselves Christians or whether we apostatize altogether and overtly and explicitly abandon Christ Jesus, it is possible to be dissatisfied with the manna from heaven that God has given us. The rabble of old had cravings for other things and complained against God and were not satisfied with the manna that God had given them. We ought to be warned, because these things took place as examples for us and were written down for our instruction. We ought to be warned that it is possible, understanding that the manna prefigures and foreshadows Christ Jesus, and Jesus is the true bread from heaven. We ought to be warned that our cravings might lead us to become dissatisfied with the bread from heaven that God has given us in Christ Jesus. We ought to be warned about that in order that we might embrace what Matthew Henry calls the mortification of the same food week after week for 40 years 
Oh, that we would eat the same food week after week for 40 years. This church was founded in 2017. I hope that in 2057, we're still serving up the same manna. That hopefully the rabble have not won the day. And here we are serving up the melons and the leeks and the cucumbers of Egypt. I hope not. I hope that it's the same manna being served up from this pulpit week after week, Sunday by Sunday, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And I hope that each and every one of you are still eating the same manna and that your cravings for variety haven't overcome you and that you haven't walked away from Jesus, the true bread from heaven. Let us be satisfied with, as we sang earlier, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. It will be my theme in glory. And may it be also my theme every step of the way toward glory. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. What has seemed to us each time we tell it more wonderfully sweet. Would we, as we come to know it better, be hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest? Would we learn to mortify our cravings for variety and be satisfied with the old, old story of Jesus and his love? He's all we have, but he's all we need, and he ought to be all we want.